0: of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word, episode number 39, April 2021, Speech and Voice Disorders, a conversation with Joanna Kasdan. Hi, Paul Meyer here, welcome. I know I promised another Zoom Masterclass series this spring, so my apologies if you've been waiting for news on that, but it looks like my calendar is actually going to be too full with coaching clients at the moment to deliver on that promise. Sorry. September and October look more promising, however, so stay tuned. If you aren't on my mailing list, email me at paul at com to be added. But meanwhile, if you need a personal one-on-one coaching session with me for a dialect, Shakespeare, accent training, sometimes called accent reduction, or pretty much anything to do with the spoken word in English, see my Zoom coaching tab on the menu bar at palmai.com. First up, as always, our guess that accent quiz. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. The background of me learning English is, is from school starting, I think, 12 years old and going to regular courses in elementary school, and then uh, secondary school after that. I think two years out of four years of secondary school I learned English. I, I, I never found it very hard. It took me a little while to get it. But uh, I, then I'm not talking about the vocabulary, because the vocabulary is still my problem. If you guessed Iceland, hearty congratulations. It was Ideas Iceland 3, contributed by Eric Armstrong senior editor for Canada in 2013. Thanks, Eric. To hear the whole recording, go to the Iceland page on the Europe page at com. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? People are often asked what, I guess, what what their earliest memory is. My earliest memory, I must have been maybe three or four at the time, and um, it's memory of my grandfather, who must have been... About 93 at the time, because he died at, at the age of 96. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. This month, my guest is my old friend, Joanna Casden. She's a speech and language pathologist, specializing in voice rehabilitation for actors and singers, and is an advocate for preventive vocal health education. She served for 18 years as the Senior Voice Clinician at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, Los Angeles. And her 2010 book, Everyday Voice Care, The Lifestyle Guide for Singers and Talkers, is a widely used text in performing arts programs in the USA and the UK. She was the founder of the Special Idea Collection, Speech and Voice Disorders, which we created so that actors might have some real-life sources to draw on when their character has such a disorder well joanna welcome we've been friends a long long time so before we get into conversation give us your um, a, a really quick dirty 60 second career story i'm very fascinated to know how you started as a singer and then ended up as a distinguished voice pathologist
1: i started actually before i became a professional singer when i was when i was a kid i was equally involved in theater arts so I, I bring that interest as well. But I was surrounded by protest folk music as a child, came of age in the late 60s, 70s, and wanted to basically be Bob Dylan, which was not so simple for women in that era, but got support from other creative feminists and Ran around the country with my Volkswagen and my guitar and my LPs trying to do singer-songwriter protest music in the 1970s, Mm -hmm. Um, landed in LA, um, needed a break from traveling, went back to school, got an MFA in theater arts, but I was still oriented toward being an artist. And I'd been teaching singing lessons here and there, doing some voice workshops already of mentally oriented that way but i didn't know there was this other field called speech language pathology but i went back to school one more time got a Mm -hmm. got a master's in science wanting to specialize in voice but one more obstacle at that time in los angeles there was no voice clinic that was oriented towards therapy there were some doctors treating the numerous uh performing artists in the area but it took 10 years um, until cedars-sinai medical center opened a, a specialty voice therapy clinic that i was actually able to work in that specialty
2: mm-hmm.
1: so in the meantime i did medical speech therapy taught at the university got a much broader experience working with stroke patients swallowing problems dementia and getting a whole host of graduate students Mm
2: -hmm. through
1: speech pathology school. Um, And then in 2001, as I say, Cedar sinai opened a clinic where I was finally able to pull all of these interests together and work in a little outpatient therapy room with a piano keyboard right next to my desk and video stroboscopy equipment down the hall for taking Mm -hmm. pictures of people's vocal cords. And I could coach if people needed to talk Shakespeare or pop singing, or deeper medical issues, I could sort of float around all of those things and try to be helpful.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Well, this is episode number thirty-nine of an of uh, in a manner of speaking. So we're we're long overdue in talking about those who have challenges with speaking or vocalizing uh, speech and voice challenges come it's a huge field could you quickly review the broad range of those kinds of difficulties
1: just about anything that affects people from the breathing system on up to the brain that's the region of the body and the region of the self that is involved in speech of course it's not only how the body and the brain work but how our relationships work and how well we're able to communicate. And there can be breakdowns at any level, whether it's from a child that has trouble making certain speech sounds on time, which is where speech pathology started in in the mid-20th century as the field was getting organized. It was mostly working with children and articulation disorders. And that's sort of the stereotype of what a speech therapist works with as we got into the 1980s speech pathologists and we started to be called speech pathologists were working as much in the medical field with finding ways to be helpful with stroke patients Mm -hmm. parkinson's disease head injury and by the 90s very deeply involved in swallowing disorders Mm -hmm. which is not about speech communication but is the very same part of the body As the field has grown more and more of us have gotten into these narrower little little groups as as happens in every in every profession
0: that's a real success story for a a very important branch of of medicine and therapy isn't it i would say so and speech language pathology is that the, the umbrella term now
1: that's that's the fancy term yeah if someone calls me a speech therapist i don't object
0: okay to many people, I think voice and speech are sort of synonymous. So let's pull those two things apart, because I know that you're a voice person rather than a speech person, right?
1: Right. I guess I would use an analogy of a string instrument. If someone's playing the violin or the cello, the bow draws across the strings to produce the basic sound. Then the left hand is fingering and defining which notes and what how fast the notes are changing if that makes sense yes so voice is the fundamental sound where a flow of breath hits these amazing little flaps of tissue in the middle of the throat and turns it into a fundamental tone that can happen in speech communication it can all also happen in moments of emotion It happens the moment an infant is born. We look for that sound. It is wired into very deep automatic systems of breathing and airway regulation and emotion. And that gives us the fundamental or underlying tone that we then modify and play with in the mouth to create speech.
0: Yes, the what the other hand is doing on the fretboard of the violin, right? Is exactly. The, is the speech. Yeah. Yes.
1: Is the speech. Okay. So they work together. Certainly, the vocal cords are dancing quite a lot to create different speech sounds. As you know, Paul, they're voiced and unvoiced consonants. So, the, So some of that fine articulation is happening. At the vocal cords but they're also communicating a lot of other things
0: so voice and speech while it's easy to talk about them as separate things eventually merge and cooperate with each other to to do the job right
1: ideally yes (laughs) yes
0: and i suppose there are challenges that are exclusively on the speech level and challenges that Mm -hmm. are exclusively on the vocalization the voice level right
1: yes sometimes they blend into each other Sometimes people have an injury that affects both, and so we need to work on both.
0: Yes, real basic question for everyone who's interested in uh, what they should do when they lose their voice or get hoarse. Mm. What, what causes that, and and uh, what what should people do? What's your, what's Professor Kasdan's recommendation for losing your voice or getting hoarse?
1: Well, it can happen for a variety of reasons. Most commonly. It's when someone gets a cold and it hits the vocal cords in a way that they get so swollen and inflamed that they simply can't vibrate. And so the the pitch goes very low and then it kind of disappears. And you've just got this, you know, very rough honking kind of sound. It's it gets tired, it hurts. I think everyone's probably had that experience. You get the same kind of inflammation or loss from transient overuse, such as going to a concert and yelling a lot, going to mm-hmm. a sports event and yelling a lot.
0: In my sixth hour of reading an audiobook.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. There is sort of surface wear and tear that gets the outer layers of the, of the vocal cords a little roughed up. And they just kind of complain and they don't sound very good. And then it's more effort to get them to sound good. And then we start to feel muscle ache and the whole body gets tired and the brain gets tired and it's really just time to shut up
0: yeah tea with honey or tea with lemon what do you think
1: your vocal cords do not care the biggest misunderstanding what we take into our mouths feels like it's going to go down a single channel into our body but in fact there's a divide a very important divide just below the level of consciousness just below the tongue behind the tongue the anatomy divides so that there's one passageway going to the lungs and one passageway going to the stomach and they need to be kept very separate the vocal cords are part of the airway they're protecting the lungs and they close up tight other things close and move as far out of the way as they can at the moment that you're swallowing your tea because the tea is headed toward your stomach your lungs don't want honey they don't want lemon and so your vocal cords don't care they just they just want to stay away from all of it it feels good a little bit higher up in your throat and so honey or lemon it's whatever you like and whatever you'll drink more of so that you'll stay hydrated yes because that also helps the vocal cords
0: what about therapeutic inhalants
1: yes now inhalants are designed by by name to get into the airway so a steam treatment a humidifier a nebulizer can be extremely helpful when the voice is feeling rough or tired Um, there are various sprays that singers use and of course there are medications that people use for asthma or for other kinds of lung conditions that do go right past the vocal cords into the airway.
0: Yeah. Whispering. Is mm-hmm. it true that whispering is a bad thing to do? Is it damaging if I start whispering to you and and what about a stage whisper?
1: There are different kinds of whispering. Whispering in general means that the vocal cords and the larynx are somewhat constricted so that they make a turbulence in the air, a turbulence in the without actually getting a clean vibration happening. So a prolonged stage whisper is sending a lot of turbulent air past the cords and they get dry, they get tired on the surfaces. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of a transient problem. And I'm gonna breathe through my nose right now to get some more humidity happening and recover from that little turbulence that I just Mm -hmm. created. So if someone is hoarse and really should be on vocal rest, either for half the day or for a whole day or whatever, whispering is going to sort of further irritate the situation. It's not a good substitute, but a trained performer doing a stage whisper briefly and with an ability to hydrate and humidify afterwards is probably gonna be okay. Yes.
0: to get very close to my mic yeah. we can also do a very quiet or gentle whisper which with, might not work on a stage right uh,
1: yes with over articulation but this works very
0: if you're close miked yes yeah. i always think joanna that um uh, and as a voice and speech teacher and coach that we can imitate many many things that might have potential harmful effects but if we can get more breath going across the vocal cords if we sort of release into the sound we're doing rather than pushing into the sound that Mm -hmm. that that makes a safer way of imitating these different potentially harmful performance techniques
1: that's generally true although some of the extreme voices for instance that are required in video gaming or overdramatic characters, they may require a lot of extra breath to get the effect that you want.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So regulating the breath to have the right am- yeah. sort of the Goldilocks amount, not too much and not too little,
0: yeah.
1: is more of the concept that I would use.
0: What's your advice to a rock singer or a, or a stage belter?
1: I send them to vocal coaches who specialize in that.
0: <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs>
1: because, because there are coaches, there are ways to do those things pop singing can definitely be trained to be more more safe rather than less and even heavy metal artists there but there are coaches who specialize in all of those things i don't i just want to get you to the point of being healthy then you go out and perform however you want with with the right kind of training yeah
0: i sometimes think that some recorders actually seek damage their voice, they like the result of a damaged sound
1: yes that is true and there are producers and casting agents who seek it out unfortunately because it's texture it's interesting when i was in school the definition of a voice disorder was a voice that called attention to itself interrupting the flow of communication that definition has had to go out the window because in the last 10 or 20 years people like to sound unique they like to sound different they get cast because they sound unique and different so the voice calling attention to itself is going to sell the product more than a generic voice that sounds like everybody else yes so there are cultural and aesthetic choices now affecting how people choose to sound and uh, it's changing my field quite a bit
0: fascinating let's talk about Glottal fry or vocal fry. Everyone's talking mm-hmm. about that these days. Uh, is it bad? Mm-hmm. Is is that a voice or a speech descriptor? Uh, we hear it in um, speech, but not in singing so much. What?
1: Some people use use a trace of it in singing. Physiologically, it's a very low pitch sound with relatively low breath pressure. It is not harmful in itself. In fact, it's occasionally used as a relaxation technique. So by itself, it's not harmful. The challenge is that it is not loud. And so if someone is trying to project and use a deeply expressive voice and their default sound is glottal fry, it's not going to carry, it doesn't have much of a pitch range or pitch variety in expressiveness and so it can get fatigued and the lack of breath support and the lack of pitch variety can indicate that overall that's a voice that is at risk for being tired. Or it can indicate that the person is kind of low energy and kind of depressed and not putting very much of their, of their real emotional life out there into the world.
0: Are we hearing more and more of it in, in real life? You know, I, I, I do hear quite a few yep. people who, who, um, who seem to live in that region, and it, yep. it's, it's sort yep. of a, a new sound that's come on the scene that we would have been discouraged when I was training many, many years ago.
1: Yes, and again, the answer now is that people don't want to be told how to sound. Mm-hmm. They do it naturally. I will say very clearly that I hear it as much in men as in women, but a lot of the criticism goes to women because of all kinds of other reasons that women's voices in public get criticized it goes with a squeezed abdominal posture and and relatively shallow breathing and i'm going to defer to the sociologists and the cultural anthropologists as to why so many people are walking around in their lives with the interior of their bodies squeezed and their emotions not coming out in their voice Mm
0: -hmm. Quick and dirty, how should people who speak and or sing for a living take care of their voices?
1: Take it seriously. Organize your life around being good to your voice. There are enough tips and tricks that I actually wrote a book on this called Everyday Voice Care. There are ways to modify everything from what you eat and drink to the kind of air you breathe, to not smoking, to knowing when to rest to not socializing in loud parties if you need your voice for work the next day, but really just taking it seriously and understanding that the people around you will never quite get it. Our colleague, Kate DeVore, Paul, whom I know you know, um, is a wonderful voice and speech coach and speech pathologist in the Chicago area, gives this wonderful um, guideline that the way you know you're taking good enough care of your voice is if the non vocalists around you think you're being a diva. Hmm. So if everybody else thinks you're doing too much, you're probably in a zone where you're doing the right amount. (laughs) Because people who don't rely on their voices will never fully understand doesn't mean you're being a diva in how you treat other people, you're just being a little more careful for yourself, what you what you eat, what you breathe, how much you sleep, how loudly yes, you party. I was, gu- was going to mention all sleep. All of those things. The yeah. voice
0: gets tired if the whole body is tired, it seems.
1: Yep, yep. And the voice gets tired if we're dehydrated. Voice gets tired because it's not trained, because we're not warming up. Training is not the same as sounding authentic. It can take very good training to sound casual.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Just like it can take very skillful makeup to look like you're not wearing any. So just Take it seriously, and I would also say, get some direct help from a class or from a coach. Do not rely on Dr. Google or YouTube.
0: That's great advice, Joanna, thank you. I'm sure people will be very grateful for that. Let's, let's talk about performing. Those, those of us who are, are actors and we um, the whole field of playing a character who has a speech or a voice disorder, fascinating and controversial, I think. I, I think of, um, you know, we, well, obviously we founded the special collection on Andea so that actors would have some real life examples of people with disorders or challenges to base their work upon. And we think of Colin Firth in The King's mm-hmm. Speech, uh, mm-hmm. playing King George VI, who uh, engages Australian speech therapist Lionel Logue to help yeah. him with his chronic stammer.
1: Colin Firth did a fabulous job. And that that film, of course, was a great boon to uh, and great uh, shot in the arm for speech pathologists everywhere. Yes. Because he did not just play the disorder, he played his relationship to the disorder. Yes. And his struggle with it and his embarrassment about it in what was, I think, a very credible way. The danger that I see is not really with the actors, who by and large, I think, tend to do their research and the collection that we put together for IDEA is great my quarrels are usually with the playwright or the scriptwriter who may use a speech disorder as a shorthand for implying that there's something else wrong with the person
0: can you give an example of that
1: in one flew over the cuckoo's nest
0: um, you're thinking of the stammerer there, billy
1: there's yes there there is this very strong subplot of a young man who stutters and stops stuttering when he resolves his sexual hangups and issues with his with his family yes and that novel and then the play were written at a time when it was believed that stuttering was a psychological disorder yes well it's not it's neurological you know there was research done on stutterers versus non-stutterers and mental problems and psychological challenges were no more present in stutterers than in non-stutterers it's a neurological glitch in the brain but at the time it was written that was not understood
2: mm. so
1: the stuttering became a shorthand for a psychological block and there are others where a speech impediment of some kind is used for comic effect. well yes we don't laugh at disabled people anymore <laughs> for
2: exactly. good reason exactly
1: um so i challenge more of of what's in the writing and the directing as to why the disorder is there sort
0: and of. have respect for it of course
1: have, yes do your do your research talk to people who actually live with that disorder does it bother them maybe it doesn't bother them maybe other people's reactions bother them um certainly people who stutter get enraged when other people finish their sentences for them it's like give me time help me relax, and I'll get
0: through this. Mm. Great. Um, here's, here's something that uh, fascinates me. When does a personal style become a disorder or a, a, an impairment or a disability or a handicap? You know, one thinks of Jimmy Stewart, who uh, certainly stammered, but mm-hmm. you thought, well, this this is not a, a, an impairment to his career. It's part of who Jimmy Stewart was, and it was charming, mm-hmm. and he used it to great effect. And and he owned the the style so mm-hmm. when, when is a personal style a, a a disorder or an impairment uh, talk about that it's for a
1: when it's not for anyone from the outside to say it's when that person can't complete the tasks that they want to do in their life yes so it's really about daily life function yes someone may be referred to me by a doctor they've got something wrong with their vocal cords and they tell me you know it doesn't bother me i went to the doctor because my family was upset about how i sound but i'm doing fine i can talk to whoever i need to talk to i can sing when i feel like singing my voice doesn't get tired it doesn't hurt and just because you know so and so else in my life doesn't like how I sound, that's not a problem. And I say, fine. Mm-hmm. I'll take some measurements you know, for the record and uh, say goodbye and come on back if I can be of help in the future. That is not a disorder.
0: Right. I stammer, but I think probably most people do stammer from time to time when we're not yes. sure of what we're going to say or we're embarrassed or whatever. Uh, but I'm certainly not a chronic stammerer, I hope. I wish I was more fluent and eloquent all the time,
1: (laughs) (laughs) but I'm not. (laughs) Don't we all? Yeah, speech is a complicated thing. There's a lot for the brain to get organized. And if we're tired or we're emotionally upset or we have too many thoughts swirling, struggling to get out, they kind of get jammed in the doorway and we stutter. Mm -hmm. And almost all children do when, when they're just figuring out how to put speech sounds and language together. Yeah talk about Julie mm-hmm.
0: Andrews and her voice.
1: Yes, a real tragedy for her as well as for, for us. all of us who yes. love who love her singing. The details of what happened are sealed up in a lawsuit, of course. But uh, she was performing on Broadway in the very demanding show Victor Victoria which has famously some two octave glides. Seamlessly going from chest voice up to head voice. There's no way I will attempt to uh, demonstrate. And otherwise vocally a demanding role. And doing eight shows a week on Broadway is demanding for anyone. And she got into a little bit of trouble. I don't know what the original diagnosis was. She went to a very reputable doctor who sees a lot of singers and other voice folks in New York. And she underwent a surgical procedure that basically took too much Mm. and disrupted enough of the vibrating cells along the edge of her vocal cord Mm. that she could no longer get a clean sound. And she consulted all the best doctors elsewhere to see if there was a repair or an injection or anything else that could be done and nothing could be done. Mm. To my knowledge, she has somehow made her peace with it i haven't read her most recent book but i should and has gone on to a second career writing children's books with her daughter so she has stayed creative she stayed connected to her family and it's simply a great loss
2: that
1: i often get asked about singers singers will come to see me and say i'm scheduled to have surgery but what happened to julie andrews and i'm afraid and i have to say it was it was a fluke there are hundreds of singers who go through very, very skillful vocal surgeries and come out just fine, yes. but that doesn't get the press, of
0: course. No, no. One could list so many other singers who've had nodules, nodes, vocal nodes. Uh, mm-hmm. I think of Adele and Elton John, 40 years ago, who were repaired successfully.
1: Yep. And ideally, if they were repaired, it wasn't just the surgeon who did it. Adele had a lot of speech therapy working with someone like me who's sort of on the boundary between rehab and singing coaching Mm
2: -hmm.
1: i don't know about elton john i would i would expect that he's worked with with coaches and or therapists so the doctors tend to get the headlines Mm -hmm. but there's usually quite a team of people helping to to rehabilitate just as an athlete who gets a knee surgery uh, gets a physical therapist and a fitness trainer and mm-hmm. a sports psychologist. And there there's a whole rehab team that's working alongside the doctor and the, and the star.
0: We could do a whole podcast on this next topic alone, but let's touch on it briefly. People born profoundly deaf or who lose hearing early. Why is acquiring speech so difficult for those who are impaired with their hearing?
1: This is not an area of expertise for me i'm going to just talk very generally about what i know which i hope will be mostly correct babies that are born deaf babble and make little cooing and gurgling sounds in the first few months like any other baby would but because they're not hearing the voice and speech around them they don't continue that Vocal play into the more complicated shapes that eventually will become speech. Mm -hmm. So, for a normal infant between ages three months and six or seven months, they're already starting to practice and copy the sounds around them. So, the babbling becomes more complicated. They play with more different consonants in their mouth and they start to mimic the melody of whatever language their parents are speaking that doesn't happen if the baby is profoundly deaf Mm -hmm. they're also not hearing themselves and so the vocal play eventually is not as stimulating or as interesting for them and it it will somewhat die out
0: this would be the same for for those very very few cases that are documented of children raised in total silence without being spoken to or, or hearing the human voice right
1: yes the wild child yes. syndrome mm-hmm. except that they tend to i believe they tend to pick up animal noises they do mimic the sounds around them but those mm. sounds are just not human speech and they don't develop and most critically they don't develop language which is the mental capacity and the the critical thing for kids that are born deaf is to stimulate their symbolic abilities that things have names that that words have meaning even if those words are presented to them visually through sign language rather than through sound so you want to avoid the language delay whether or not speech is present if that makes sense there's sort of
0: there's a sort of a window there that closes at a certain age
1: the the window again i'm pulling information that i that i haven't reviewed recently the prime ages for language for speech and language are up till about age four three and four Mm -hmm. if there's no stimulation at all in those ages there's probably going to be um, some delay or, or disorder, but the window then closes very gradually. So children that are introduced to speech and language at age six will be in better shape than, for instance, there are these horrendous stories of children taken from the orphanages in Romania, mm. where large numbers of children were just warehoused without stimulation of much of any kind. And the mental and psychological Limitations and the language limitations were lifelong, even if they were adopted, let's say, at age eleven.
0: Yes, great. So let's let's close by talking about the the bloody pandemic. Mm. Future listeners to this podcast will uh, be interested to know that we are in the midst of COVID nineteen. Let's talk about that from your point of view. In the pandemic era, why is talking on Zoom, which we all do so much more now, like we are now, more tiring? for the voice than the same amount of talking or teaching in person. What's your thought on that?
1: There's been quite a lot of research and and publishing on this because it was so clear a year ago in March of 2020 when things shut down so completely and speech therapists and voice teachers had to move online and they were saying, I'm supposed to know what to do with my voice and I train and I warm up and I'm still getting tired on Zoom where I could teach for those same number of hours in person. We're sitting in front of a screen. So the entire body is more still. We're not moving. We're not breathing Mm. completely. And we're not getting that same dynamic feedback from the other person. So there's more of a general anxiety of, am I getting my point across? which Mm. leads to again a little constriction of the body and a tendency to push the voice Um,
0: even though the microphone is you know six inches from your face
1: ideally you have a good mic and people discovered very quickly that using a headset mic or a very close boom mic was much much preferable than trying to project through the computer system (laughs) into zoom to the other person But the brain also gets tired. Again, we're physically restricted. Our eye gaze is kind of fixed in the same place for longer periods of time. It is more demanding on the entire mental and physical and psychological communication system.
0: It ain't natural, Uh, right?
1: it's, It's very unnatural.
0: How does wearing a mask change how we talk and what we hear?
1: Oh, it changes how we hear ourselves. It changes how we breathe, it muffles our consonants so that people might be able to hear each other but not understand each other as well. There was a really interesting article on this a couple months ago in a speech and hearing magazine about people who are going to their audiologist to get their hearing tested and their hearing aids adjusted. And they're doing all of this through a mask and the audiologist is wearing a mask. And it's so much harder for the audiologist to communicate because this person has a hearing deficit to begin with Mm. (laughs) that cuts off their consonant frequencies most generally. And the mask just makes it much, much, much worse. And then staying at six foot distance for safety also makes Mm. all of it worse. So um, there are a lot of things you wouldn't have thought about in wearing a mask, but it, it can help if if people are listening during this mask era over articulate rather than trying to just get loud make your speech crisp
0: Joanna Kasdan thank you so very much for spending time with me today fascinating oh
1: thank you Paul it's been a fun conversation
0: and thanks for joining me Paul Meyer and my guest Joanna Kasdan to learn more about her and for links to her music and books, please go to the webpage on paulmire.com devoted to this podcast. And to consult the special collection on voice and speech disorders we referred to in the podcast, simply click the Special Collections tab on the menu bar at dialectsarchive.com. Email me at paul at paulmeyer.com if you have another YouTube clip to suggest that we include in that special collection. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. My guest next month is my old drama school chum, Mem Fox, who went on to become the best-selling children's author she is today. Perhaps you've read her first and most famous book, Possum Magic, to your own kids. We'll be talking about reading to kids and its importance in their later voice, speech, language and literacy skills. So see you for that next time in a manner of speaking.